Well, hello, Porch friends. It is awesome to be with you. My name is Todd. I'm on the pastoral staff here at Watermark, and I love dropping in with you at the porch. And we're coming to you right here from Dallas, Texas. Not balmy Dallas, Texas. Frozen iced over Dallas, Texas. And that's why we wish we were with our friends out there in Scottsdale and that nice balmy weather you have in Arizona. Uh, we got friends up there in Boise who are always cold, so they've got no sympathy for us. And our friends up in Indianapolis, we know, are getting hit. And certainly all our friends around Texas, Houston and other places, we're in the middle of a, a pretty significant weather event right now. And so I, I'm not in the room with all my usual friends here in Dallas where we're just um, a, a local church trying to be and make disciples and loving folks. And we know that you're doing that in locations that are out there. But everybody's online tonight. And so it's awesome to be with you. And we are in a series called Fortune Telling. And Fortune Telling, uh, what we're doing is basically taking words from the past, the only words in the past that are reliable, God's word, and seeing what it has to say about our future. And I want you to know we're committed to you because we are giving you this message at great peril to ourselves because there's been a break in our sprinkler system here. The pipes have burst. And so they've told us that if there's a fire in this room and there's no sprinkler system, there's no alarm that's going to go off. So there's a good chance, like a fire is just going to come in the middle of this thing. So you want to hang around and watch and just see what in the world's going to happen to us. But we're committed to you. And so we're just, we're willing to be here because we've already answered the question from God's word in our own life that you're going to want to get answered tonight. And so tonight's question is relevant to all of us all the time. And certainly to those of us who are teaching you at great peril. And the question is this, will I go to heaven when I die? Now, I do want to just uh, preface that a little bit before we dive in a little bit and just tell you that we're not really talking when we answer this question about fire insurance only, right? Because that's the way some people look at this thing, man. I got to get good with God so I can have fire insurance. No, what we're really talking to you about is if you can answer this question well, and by the way, we're all going to die. We're either going to die or we're going to be here when Christ himself returns and brings judgment to the earth, all right? And so you want to be a person who knows you're at peace with God. And if you're at peace with God and you know where you're going to spend your eternity, there's going to be a resurrection, the Bible tells us, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting judgment. And if you're an individual who affirmatively answers the question, I know I'm going to rise to everlasting life, that means you're going to get to live and enjoy that God now. So what we're really talking about is not how can I go to heaven when I die, but how can I experience God's abundant life now? How can my 20s be free, not from the fear of sudden death and judgment, but free from hopelessness, anxiety, despair, leaning my ladder against the wrong wall and trying to find success in all the wrong places? If you'll just track with me and let me answer from old words, the ancient words that foretell our future, it's going to change your 20s, not just your forever. But look, man, the Bible does say that this life is a vapor, that uh, if we're given to strength, our, our life will be somewhere just a little bit north of 80. And so it's crazy to live with a sense of indifference about eternity because you think you can have more fun today. And I'm just going to tell you, you will not have a greater 20s if you rebel against God and put this question off till you need it. And by the way, none of us knows when we're going to need it. There's all kinds of folks in their 20s. They're going to face the end of their life in a way they never expected. But what I'm concerned about tonight is how you can start to experience life right now in your 20s that will allow you also to have a great sense of peace 
that when you die, you're going to continue the relationship with God you've already been enjoying. So let me just start uh, this by saying this to you. You can know the answer to the question. You can know the answer to the question because God in his kindness has, has given us in his word. Okay, this is what his word says. Um, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and following, it says, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and the life is in his son. Now watch this. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. These things... I have written to you who believe in order that you might know that you have eternal life. So I just want to make it really clear as we get started that you can know the answer to this question. God's word doesn't want you to have to kind of wander through life hoping you got it right. The Bible says you can know. But here's the deal. So many folks get distracted by life um, and maybe by the promise of uh, all the wonder of youth right? The Bible says the glory of a young man is his strength, which means, hey man, I'm good to roll. I, I, I'm, um, I'm pretty certain I know where to find life. I'm pretty sure I know how to get the most out of this life. And so a lot of times we've bought the lie that God's not good and his word's not true and that disobeying him is not that big a deal. And so a lot of us, we got to go down some long and winding and dark roads to find out that maybe this way that seems right to me is going to end in death and not in life. And I know a lot of my friends that listen to us at the porch have experienced a living death. You have not experienced the life that you thought following your own way and following your flesh would give to you. And you're sitting there, not just wondering what'll happen when you die, but if life is worth living while you're alive. Well, track with me, because I think you'll find that it is. This last week, just a little bit pre-Valentine's Day, I took my Valentine, my wife of 30 years away to a place south of the border in sunny Mexico, and it was amazing. And while we were there, we um, you know, were with some friends, and there were some other folks that were around this one little nice resort pool that we were at. And there was one gal that uh, wouldn't be at the porch if she was hanging around with us. She was probably your grandmother. Uh, and she was clearly very wealthy because uh, it became obvious to us that she was pretty doggone comfortable at that place. And the reason she was comfortable is because she had been at this resort since September. <laughs> That's right. This, this, she had been there since September. The gal cruises for a living. She basically lives on cruise ships because the cruise ships were shut down. She found the nicest resort she could, and she just made it home. And so she was hanging out by this pool. And I hadn't known this about her yet. I hadn't talked to her, but I'd seen her and... Um, you know, honestly, I, I, she was alone and she didn't have the benefit of a, a spouse like I did and she didn't have benefit of friends like I did. And um, I, I, was, I was engaging with a bunch of folks, engaging with a lot of folks. I saw she was just kind of alone. And so I, I, I waited till there was a moment that um, kind of fell into my lap when she was the only person at the pool. What had happened is the sun had started to set. My wife and I ran up, we grabbed a shower and we changed and we're getting ready to walk to dinner. And there she was, my friend Robin, sitting by a pool all by herself. And so as my wife and I walked by, I turned to her, not knowing her name yet or anything, I just turned to her and I said, hey, you win. You got the whole thing to yourself, right? You win. This, this place is yours. You were the longest out here today. And she turned and she started talking to me and she didn't stop. I mean, she talked for about 12 to 15 minutes before I could say another thing because she was obviously so alone and hadn't talked to anybody. She lamented a little bit about and told us a little bit of her story and lamented a little bit about how 
Um, you know, normally it's more social on a cruise, but a lot of people come here just for a little bit of time and they want to be alone and they're relaxing like we had been for the last two days before I'd really engaged her. And I just told her, I said, hey, listen, I've got a couple waiting for me at dinner, literally about 12 minutes into her, um, just sharing about her story. And I said, hey, will you be out here tomorrow? Let's catch up tomorrow. So I went to dinner with my wife and came home. She and I prayed for Robin. And the next day, as we were by the pool, uh, I looked for the right opportunity to just say, hey, Robin, you know, let's talk a little bit. And we just got to talk to her. And she shared a lot about her amazing uh, travels. And they were amazing. She'd been doing it for quite some time and had the means and resources to do that. But I, I, I turned to her and I just said to her at one point, I go, Robin, one of the things that you do when you're with friends is at some point you, you tell them the most important thing about you. If I was going to get to really know you and you were going to tell me this is the most important thing about me, what would you tell me about you? And she went on to say, well, you, you probably need to know I like, I like gardening when I'm home and I love to travel, which I had figured out by that point. I might throw in that she also loved to talk, <laughs> but who doesn't when you're alone a lot? But, uh, but anyway, she told me that. And so she never asked me, though, what was the most important thing to me. But what happened in her continuing to talk is she shared with me a little bit about a trip that she had taken at one point to Cuba. And uh, in the midst of this, she mentioned the fact that she went by uh, Fidel Castro's very expensive grave. And that's where I jumped in and said, let me stop you for a second. And let me ask you this. Do you think when Fidel Castro was living, he ever thought about that grave? And do you think that he was living in such a way all his years that he was experiencing everything that a guy wants to experience? And she thought, well, I don't know. I mean, certainly was powerful. He was powerful at the expense to a lot of other people. And by the way, so many times when men apart from God trying to find life, they exert their own will and way and, and live according to their own power in a way that they don't really care what happens to women that are in their path or other emotions and hearts that are in their path. And a lot of times they do it in a way that's even reckless to their own soul. Not so uh, with living according to God's power. It leads to blessing for so many people. But what I said to my friend was this, something I'm going to share with you. I, I, um, I said, let me, just, let me just tell you a story, all right? Because, you know, I, I hear, Robin, have you thought much about your own grave? And uh, she goes, well, I just, you know, I don't like to talk about those kind of things. And I said, well, let me tell you a story. And this was the story I told her. I said, this is a story about a guy who was himself very wealthy and very learned. And, um, and he ruled over a lot of people, but he had this one specific servant that wasn't uh, very sharp. In fact, he was the dumbest guy he had ever met. In fact, he so annoyed him that eventually one day he came up upon the servant when he had asked him to do something. The servant forgot what he was supposed to do and uh, got to it even late when he did finally get pushed to do it again and he did it wrong because he didn't remember how he was supposed to do it. And he called his servant over there and he was a likable servant, but he was just stupid. And he just said to him, hey, come here. He goes, I want to tell you something. I love you, all right? I mean, you're my servant, and I think you're doing the best you can, but you are the dumbest person I've ever met. You're the greatest fool I've ever known. And I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give you a stick, all right? And I want you to carry this stick and hold on to it the rest of your life until you see somebody more stupid and foolish than you. Now, I told this story to my friend Robin. She was, she goes, that's awful. I go, well, just hang in there. It's just a story, Robin, all right? And so uh, anyway, so this, this fool's got this stick, and he's walking around with it for a couple of decades, now, as it happens with all of us, this master of his was getting to a place where he himself uh, was no longer going to be a master over anybody. He was going to die. And so he was calling people um, 
into his presence that had lived with him for a while. And he said, go get that, that dumb servant of mine. Because I just want to tell him, you know, I want to make sure he hears me say something nice to him because the last thing he maybe heard me say was, here's your stick. Don't give it to anybody till you die. And he goes, well, he's still got the stick. So anyway, he calls for that servant. That servant comes in carrying his stick. And his master says, hey, I just wanted to say goodbye to you. And because he was just dumb, he tried to dumb down the fact that he had an impending death. And he said, um, I'm not going to see you anymore in a very short period of time. And the, and, the, and the servant said, well, why is that, master? He said, well, because I'm going on a trip. He goes, oh, you're going on a trip? Where's your trip? And I said, well, I'm not really sure where my trip is. You're not sure where your trip is. Well, how long have you known that you were going to go on this trip? And the master looked at the dumb servant and said, well, I've known my entire life I was going to take this trip. Well, master, what will you need on this trip that you don't know where you're going, that you've known your whole life that you're going to get there, what will you need to have it be a successful trip? What provisions will, will make your journey uh, one of peace? And the master said, you know, I don't really know. And so the dumb servant looked at him and said, let me ask you a question. Master, you've known you were going to go on this trip your whole life. He said, yes. And you've, you don't know where exactly it is or how to get there, and, and you don't know what you need to take that's going to make your trip prosperous and successful? And the master goes, yeah. And the servant looked at him and said, Master, here's your stick. See, if you know that you're going to die, and all of us know that we're going to die, the statistics for death, if you haven't noticed, are pretty impressive. All right? For every one person that's born, there is a corresponding death to that person. Death is, I don't know how many folks have been on earth since the beginning, but it's in the teens of the billions. But um, there have been... 17-ish billion people born, and that many people die. There is one outstanding example, uh, one, one, one outstanding uh, exception to that rule, and he is the answer to how to live your 20s the way you want to and how to have peace with God. His name, obviously, is Jesus. There are a few others, if you know your Bible, uh, that uh, were removed in a rather spectacular way uh, and stood before God and still faced judgment. And they had to be ready to answer this exact same question, which is, how can I have peace with God? So let me remind you that you're going to benefit from this answer, not just on your judgment day, but you're going to benefit from the answer to this question right now. Because you're going to learn about the character and the nature and the goodness of God. So you can begin to walk with him today. And Jesus didn't come so you'd have fire insurance. Jesus came that you might have life and have it abundantly. So I'm going to read you a little story just to kind of set this up because uh, I'm going to make a bit of a disclaimer. And that is um, this. You can know as to whether or not you're going to heaven. I already read to you 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. You can know, but only the Father knows for sure about you. Now, why do I say that? Because sometimes people come to me and say, hey, man, Todd, will you give me assurance that I'm saved? Okay, and, uh, and I think I would say to you what other uh, prophets of God, you know, men who bring forth the truth of God, have said to people in the past, and I would say, hey, well, why don't you bear fruit in keeping with whatever repentance you have professed in your relationship and knowledge about the goodness and the holiness of God? That's what John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, actually. But the Bible says that God has given you his word so that you can know that you have eternal life but only God knows for sure 
who those people are. God's not going to call me and say, hey, Todd, um, those folks that are uh, members of Watermark, should I let them into heaven? He doesn't need my opinion. My job is not to see through people to find out if you're really saved. My job is to see you through to greater faithfulness. And my job tonight is to help you see what God's word says, these ancient words that will lead you on a path of not just security at the grave, but what the Bible describes as prosperity. Not fleeting prosperity like fame and materialism, but a life that prospers, a soul that is at peace and filled with life and joy. Here's the parable that Jesus told. It comes in Matthew chapter uh, 13, where Jesus is telling a lot of stories just to teach us about um, the kingdom of God. And this is what he's saying about how we'll know at the end who is and who isn't his, okay? So I'm reading this parable because I'm answering the question is, why do I say you can know, 1 John 5, 11 through 13, but only the Father knows for sure about you? Here's why. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Matthew 13, now I'm in verse 25. But while this, his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. Tares are um, a form of plant that look like wheat, but they're not fruit bearing, okay? That's what a tear is. And it says, these guys, these enemies came in and they sowed the seed, if you will, that leads to tares amongst the wheat. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said, hey, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? How is there some fake wheat? Kind of tares are to wheat what pyrite is to gold. It's fool's gold, all right? It looks like gold, but it's not really gold, all right? So he says, um, an enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, do you want us then to go and gather up the tares? But he said, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together. This is so important. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather wheat into my barn. And then Jesus goes on to close up the story by saying, hey, so will the end of time be when the Son of Man sends his angels out and he'll gather his true children to him. In other words, we are not to walk around going saved, not saved, saved, not saved, but we are to be individuals that spur each other on to love and good deeds. We are to be people that admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. We are to be friends that remind each other of what God says is true. And that is, just like wheat bears fruit that leads to life, people that have a relationship with God and that are rooted and grounded in their relationship with him, the expectation is that they will too bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. In other words, it's not just gonna be that they say something, it's going to be true of them that they do something, that there is a life change, a transformation that God produces. Let me just give you a, um, uh, an example of what should not give you any assurance. And I do wanna make a, a little distinction right here, is when I talk to you about assurance of salvation, I wanna separate that from what the Bible teaches um, 
is true about those who do have a relationship with God, which is eternal security. So we are secure because of what Christ has done and because of Christ calling and choosing us and Christ providing for us and working in us uh, a repentance that causes us to see our need and trust in him and we become secure in our relationship with him. This is what um, the Bible says in, in John chapter 10, verse uh, 14, right after he says, I've come that they might have life and have it abundantly. He also says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own. He says a little later, he says, and none that the Father have given to me will I lose. When people say you can lose your salvation if you have it, that's not um, a comment about your inability to maintain your salvation. The reason I am so offended by that idea is because it really is an assault not on you, the sheep, who might wonder, but on the shepherd who says that he won't lose even one. Now here's what is true. Is there gonna be some people that say, Jesus is my shepherd, Jesus is my shepherd, that we're gonna find out Jesus was not their shepherd. I introduce this right here because I want you to listen closely to how you can have assurance because you truly should know that you are secure in your relationship with God and not be filled with um, delusion that is gonna cost you your very soul. It's also, by the way, an answer to a question that so many of you have, which is, hey, I said I believe that Jesus is Lord. I, I said I was a sinner, but where's this abundant life? Where's, where's the goodness and the riches of life? My life has only gotten worse since I've trusted in Jesus. And I don't, I don't sense this abundant life. I have people ask me this all the time. It's probably a question that you've got, like, how do I experience the abundant life? And the answer is, you know the Son, and you walk with the Son. The Son is the visible image of the invisible God, and God is filled with loving kindness and truth. No good thing does he withhold from those who love him. If you knew that Jesus is the source of peace and life and goodness, why would you ever do anything except keep your eyes fixed on him, the, the author and the perfecter of your faith? If you knew that walking with him and letting him inform your heart and your soul about where to live was gonna lead to the good and acceptable and perfect life, why would you ever leave his ways? And so there are some people that are gonna say that they know Jesus, but then they don't walk and abide with Jesus. And that should make you question your certainty or your assurance that you really know the goodness of God. Let me just uh, start by um, introducing you to a guy that, um, that we bring up a lot, frankly, around the porch, and he's known in Scripture as the rich young ruler, all right? I'm not going to read you the whole story about the rich young ruler. You can do that in Mark chapter 10, and uh, he shows up in Matthew 19, other places in your New Testament. But in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, I'm just going to take you to the very first verse and uh, I want us to make some observations about what happens with this guy, okay? Because this, this um, Jesus, this one who is the source of life, um, was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him. This is not a story. This is an actual interaction that Jesus had. And a man ran up to him. Maybe you ran up to the porch tonight and you, you have got some of the exact same questions that this guy did. The guy walks up to Jesus and he knelt before him. And he asked him, 
after addressing him with nobility and truth. He called him good teacher. That word good isn't just mean better than others. The word he used for good right there is a very specific word that says without error, perfect teacher, which is why Jesus says to this guy, why do you call me perfect? No one's perfect except God alone. But he says, he, on his knees, he calls Jesus perfect. And then he says, the porch isn't around yet. They're not doing a fortune telling series yet. They're not answering the question, how will I know if I go to heaven when I die? So I got to come to you. And I want to know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me just make three quick observations just from this one verse. Because I think this will help you. Number one. Outward signs of pure of piety. Outward signs of piety. Do you remember this brother got on his knees? Are no assurance of inward surrender. We're going to find out that this guy was doing something very religious, right? When someone takes a knee before somebody, it looks like I'm showing you honor, and I'm uh, I'm even doing what uh, you see a lot of people who do stuff like this and take a knee before an altar. But that outward sign does not necessarily always equate itself to inward surrender. We're going to find that this rich young ruler thought he was as good as Jesus. Secondly, um, correct professions of faith. Now this one you got to really listen closely to. Correct professions of faith are not to be confused with somebody who because they say something that it's a correct profession necessarily has a correct position in terms of their reconciliation with God before the Father. You can say things about God that are right and true and still not be reconciled to God. When this man called Jesus a good teacher, just like some of you might say, yeah, I think Jesus is Lord. I'm not, I'm not a Muslim. I don't say he's just a man. I'm not a Hindu. I don't say he's just one of many men that have actualized into gods. I'm not a Mormon. I don't believe that Jesus was... Um, you know, the brother of Lucifer and, and any other of the different ideas that have been falsely attributed to who Jesus is. You might reject all of those. You might go, no, Jesus, the son of God, he, is, um, he was with the father in the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. You might say all the fullness of deity dwells in him. You might say he is the intrinsically good one and the exact representative nature of God, and all that would be true, but just because you say those things, it doesn't mean that you are reconciled to the Father in a correct position of being restored because of your sinfulness, which separates you from God. Saying what's true of God, and even true of yourself, doesn't give you salvation. I'm going to give you the best example I can of this before I come back to the third thing. And um, and that is demons. If you ever really want to know and study um, about who exactly um, Jesus is, a good thing to do is to go look at eternal, well, not eternal because they were created, but go at created spirit beings that were already in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit in all eternity. They're called demons in the Scripture. All right? And what I want to just make really clear right here is that you want to be an individual that's got a, a dynamic faith. The rich young ruler did not have a dynamic faith. He had what the demons had. And there's a difference between a dynamic faith, which 
brings the power of transformation and healing and reconciliation to God and a demonic faith, which has a correct profession associated with it and words that say something, but do not have a life that actually responds to it. So just let me give you a few verses here. In James chapter two, verse 19, it says this, you believe that God is one? In other words, do you hold to the Trinitarian view of scripture that says that there is one God, who has eternally existed in the form of three persons who relate to each other in mutual subjection, love, and honor. That there's distinction within the Godhead, but there is also unity and subordination. They're all co-eternal. They're all, uh, all omniscient, all, all powerful. You can have a right understanding of the Godhead, a Trinitarian view, and still be deluded. Because the scripture says, you believe that God is one? that there's only one God and he is who he's revealed himself to be? Well, that's good, you do well. But I wanna remind you, James says, even the demons believe that. In fact, they're so convinced it's true that they shudder when they think about the nature and the holiness and the reality of God because they've rebelled against the nature and the holiness and the reality of God. And they know that judgment awaits them. So they say the correct profession, but they're not in a correct position before the Father. Let me just show you a couple of other verses. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, this is demon interacting with um, a spirit being that's part of um, the demonic angelic realm. And this is what they cry out to him. They say, what business do we have with each other? Meaning, holy son of God, what business do we have with you? Have you come to torment us before our time? This The same um, group of demons was interacting with Jesus in, in the gospel of Mark in chapter one in verse 24. This is what it says. It says, again, what business do we have with you, Jesus of Nazareth, God made man? Have you come to destroy us? We know who you are. You're the holy one of God. Now, why do I read to you those two verses? Because if you want a really good sense of who God is, Listen to spiritual beings who have seen God enthroned in the heavens. Demons biblically have the most accurate theology in almost all the Bible from an information perspective. Their theology is right, which is the study of the Godhead. Their Christology is right, like who is Jesus? He's the Holy One of God. Their angelology is correct. They know that, that they are not God. And they know that certain angels um, are going to be judged because they've rebelled against God. Their harmatology is correct, which is that, um, that there is salvation uh, only in Christ alone that they're separate from, which gets to their theodicy, which is the study of the justice of God. Their eschatology is right, which is the study of last things and ultimate days. Demons nail it in every one of those categories and they are not in a correct position before the Father. Why am I telling you this? Because this is not an informational issue with you. Your salvation is not determined by a propositional true-false statement. In other words, I can't just say to you, are you a sinner? Is God holy? Has God made provision for your sin? Is the way that men can be reconciled to God only through Jesus Christ? And you go, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, God is holy. Yes, my sin separates myself from him. Yes, Jesus died on a cross in order that I might be saved Yes, there is no other way to the Father except through Jesus. There is no other name. You would repeat what Peter said not long after the resurrection 
under heaven by which men must be saved except for Jesus Christ. If all you do is say those things, but it's not accompanied by an abiding belief, then you're gonna miss heaven by 18 inches. You got the right information, but it's not seated, if you will. And I point to my heart because the Bible speaks about the heart as the seat of human emotion, the seat of human understanding, not the organ, the heart, but what makes up in effect the true belief of the soul of man. It is possible to have a good theology, solid doctrine, and be a demon. Now listen, I like to tell people that there's nothing more important than solid doctrine, except solid doctrine isn't the most important thing. <laughs> Do you hear that paradox? In other words, you've got to know truth because truth is what sets you free. But knowing truth is only the first part. That's why the Bible says, acquire wisdom. And in all your acquisition, acquire understanding because understanding is wisdom applied. This is the problem with so many porches. This is the problem with so many churchmen. This is why so many of you are now just returning to church through this ministry called The Porch, and you're like, you know what? My mom and dad said they love God, but man, my mom and dad are divorced. My mom and dad was, uh, led our home in a way that did not make our home filled with peace because so many of you maybe grew up in homes of people who were churchmen, who knew truth and had solid doctrine and dogma that they would attest to, but they did not abide with, walk with, remain with Jesus in their walking. They didn't bear fruit in keeping with their professed confession. How can you know you're going to heaven? Well, as I already told you, it's not because you're going to be somebody who um, just walks up to Jesus and takes a knee. It's not going to be because when you walk up to Jesus and take a knee, you say the right things. And I'm just going to tell you, you're even being interested in how I'm going to answer this question is not a guarantee. Here's the third thing I would show you is this guy said, how do I know I can inherit eternal life? And so I would tell you a concern for spiritual things does not ensure that there is a condition of spiritual trust. I'm glad you wanna know in this fortune-telling series the answer to the question, how can I know I have eternal life or I'm gonna go to heaven when I die? I'm glad you're not a fool who just doesn't really care about this journey. All of us think about it. I guarantee you Fidel Castro did. I know my friend Robin did when we finally got into it and we talked about it. She had thought about it. She knows that this cruise through life is gonna to come to an end. And some of you guys know that you're not cruising through life the way that you want to right now in your 20s. And you're wondering how to get off the ship of despair that you're on. And the answer is Jesus. But it's not just doing spiritual things, religious activity, locking in on the porch on Tuesday nights. It's not just saying Jesus is Lord. It's knowing Jesus is Lord. There is a world of difference between believing about and believing in. There's a difference between a said faith and a saving faith. There's a difference between professing Christ and possessing a relationship with his spirit. Now, I'm gonna just tell you one of the greatest assurances that I've got that I'm saved is because uh, of what happened in my life when I came to understand who I was and who God was. In fact, one of the things we love to do, and um, 
I had this conversation with somebody just this week, is, is that when we are engaging them sometimes, we'll just go, okay, let's just say that you're at the end of your life, okay? And, um, and, and you stand before the Lord. How confident are you that you would go to heaven, right? Are you at a point in your spiritual life where if you die today, you know you'd go to heaven? And most people, when you ask them that, will kind of go, well, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. They don't say it with a lot of confidence, but they kind of say it that way, in which you want to follow up with them and just say, okay, well, how about this? On a scale of one to 10, how sure are you that if you die, you'd go to heaven? And a lot of times people are just trying to be humble and they'll, they'll go, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm not going to say I'm perfect, you know, but uh, I'm not Fidel Castro. You know, I haven't brought people under atheistic, communistic oppression and sold them a bill of goods under the idea of socialism, what really became just self-elevation and oppression of the masses. no. Um, I'm not Fidel Castro, I'm not Hitler, but I'm, I'm not sure I'm Mother Teresa either. So I don't know, seven, maybe an eight. And um, I wanna tell you that if your answer is anything other than a zero or a 10, you're a very arrogant person. In fact, I can remember the last time I had this conversation with somebody, I just go, man, that's interesting. Can you tell me why you were a seven? And they basically went through something like I just shared with you. They, 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 they gave some explanation of their own life. They started to build their own resume. I'm not Castro. I'm not Hitler, right? And I'm not going to say that I'm, you know, perfect. I'm not Billy Graham, you know. I'm not Mother Teresa, so I'm not a 10. So I want to get over here to be like, you know, a seven. And they think they're being humble. What they're really doing is being arrogant. When I look at them and I tell them, well, I'm a 10, they often say to me, that's arrogant. And I go, but let me just explain to you why I'm a 10. I'm not a 10 for the same reason you think you're a seven. Because if I was putting together my resume, I'm not gonna tell you I'm pastor of a, a church in Dallas, Texas. I'm not gonna tell you I've memorized a ton of scripture. I'm not gonna tell you that um, I say correct things about God. I'm gonna tell you that left to myself, all I deserve is judgment. I'm a 10 because my future fortune is told by some ancient words which tells me that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. It's a gift. I'm gonna tell you I'm a 10 because I know that I've been saved not as a result of my own works, but by the gracious gift of God. For by grace, we have been saved through faith. And even our own faith is not of ourself. It's a gift from God. Nothing we do is a result of works so that no man should boast. My 10 is not my boasting in my resume. My 10 is boasting in the righteousness of God and what he has done for me. This is the difference, gang, between religion and having a right relationship with God. Religion is what man does. Christianity is a declaration of what Christ has done. Now, what you have to ask yourself is, do I just know the facts? Some of us haven't even dealt with the fact that when I lean on my own understanding and go my own way, it's that bad yet. And I would just tell you, if you like what you got, keep doing what you're doing. But if you keep doing what you're doing, you're not gonna like what you got. And I'm gonna guess you're gonna not like what you got even a long time before you meet ultimate judgment. You're gonna live under the judgment of your own rebellion against God. The Bible says the way of the treacherous is hard. But I got great news for some of you guys that are already scarred, that have already lived hard lives because you didn't know the goodness of God. He is gentle 
and kind. And he's made provision for your sin. And he wants to heal you and make you whole. Good works is not good enough. The Bible makes that clear. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus says, I, I, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees who had all kinds of correct God language and did all kinds of correct God things and said they were really concerned about spiritual things, it wasn't good enough. That was like saying Billy Graham and Mother Teresa exponentially combined aren't good enough. A man who is filled with the preaching of truth and a woman who is filled with good works combined together don't make you saved. What makes you saved right with God is faith in the work of God alone. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 says, here's the standard. You've got to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. That's why Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, and the Pharisees don't make it. That's why no resume building could ever get the job done. And it's why if you understand the kindness and the goodness of God, that all of us as humans have laughed and rejected in saying in our own ways, you know, I don't need you. I'll manage my relationship with you. I, won't, I don't really want to tick you off, but I'm certainly not going to order my life the way that you want. People that say that are people that don't know the kindness of God. If you know that God left the comfort of heaven and took on the form of humankind and being found in the flesh and being made in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross to redeem you and me. What else do you need to know about the nature of God? To turn from your own sin and to run to him and then say, I want to know more of you and follow more in your ways. I want to live my 20s for you, not just have an answer to a test. The thing that I want you to walk away with tonight is not that you need fire insurance. Not that you need to know information, right? I mean, uh, all of us, you know, I don't have a hard time convincing anybody the fact that uh, left to ourselves, life isn't all that we want our life to be. But here's the question. What are you going to do about the fact that this way that you thought would lead to life is not leading to the life that you wanted? If you're missing out on the abundant life, it's because you're not abiding with God. See, People on earth, sometimes their pipes freeze and break. I don't care if you're a church. I don't care if you have a building that's used to broadcast the gospel message out there. Sometimes your pipes freeze. But there is peace and a prosperous hope, even in the midst of despair, when you know the kindness and the goodness of God, because he's told you why pipes freeze on earth. Because this is not the world that he created. It's a world that's been marred and affected by sin, just like yours and just like mine. Do you know what the greatest assurance is that I know that I've been saved? Is now when I sin, I hate it. I'm just going to close with this. If there has not been a transformation in your nature, um, Proverbs 26 says, just like a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to his folly. I think that's Proverbs 26, 11. Proverbs 26, I think 16 says this, a righteous man falls seven times and yet rises again. When I first came to understand who Jesus was and what he had done for me, I can remember saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. That's the easiest thing in the world for me to say. 
I just can't believe you're that good that you love me and pursue me anyway. But I've got no other option. First of all, I did my work. I looked at this idea of a resurrection. I looked at why the Bible can be trusted. I looked at um, why the, the, the fact that Jesus is the only way to God made sense. It was a source of grace and not even um, mean-spirited by God. And I, I did some study and I worked through these questions and I came to a place where I was certain that Christianity was true and made sense. I didn't commit intellectual suicide and I trusted in him. And I remember waking up the next day and still being a man that struggled with lust and anger, and still being a man that struggled with control, and still being a man that struggled with how people perceived him, and I go, oh, I must not have really prayed to receive Christ. Because the Bible says, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, and new things have come. And, and I, I didn't feel like anything was new. My flesh still desired things that I know that weren't going to lead to life. But here's what changed. Prior to my coming to know Christ, I didn't really hate sin. I hate when sin cost me something. I hate when I was caught. I hate when it caused shame, but I kind of liked it. And I thought that if I just had the opportunity to sin the way I wanted to, when I wanted to, without consequence, life would be great. That's a foolish way to live. Deserves a stick. And you get one (laughs) that you beat yourself with. Right? A fool's folly brings his own pain to him. That's why it says a fool will fall um, you know, a hundred times, whereas a wise man, or, or get beaten a hundred times and not come to his senses, whereas a righteous man, one rebuke will turn him around. What it changed in me was not that my flesh still was foolish, but what changed in me is that in my flesh now was a right understanding of God. The old thing that was gone was that I wasn't just a slave to my flesh, the enemy who lies about God in my world, which lives in rebellion against him. Now what dwelled inside of me was the Holy Spirit, a spirit of truth that knew God was good, that God was loving, that God was kind, and I felt conviction for my sin. If you are an individual that when you see vomit sin and you don't just want to eat it, but that you eat it and only concern is that you'll get caught, that should trouble you. That means your nature hasn't changed. That means you're still a dog and not a sheep who knows the good shepherd, who sometimes sheep do stupid stuff, but you know the whole time, like, what am I doing? My master leads me beside green pastures. Why do I keep returning to this vomit of sin? I no longer have to because I now know the goodness of God. If that conviction is not happening in you, if you continue to move towards immorality and don't flee it, it should bother you. Now, I want to remind you, righteous men fall, but they rise. They rise in repentance, and they flee in morality, and they pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on God with a pure heart. This is the last verse I want to give you. I'm going to read to you 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12. First Timothy 6, 11 and 12, and then we're done. It's really basically what I'm saying. How can you know? Well, I'm going to keep these verses ready for you, but you can know because you say the right thing and you believe the right thing. The Bible uses the word confess the exact same way, what's actually the exact same word in the Greek as profess. 
It's homo legio, which basically means um, the same well-spoken word. In other words, what you say is the same as what you really believe. That's called a confession. It's called a profession. When the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, what it's saying is not just a one-time statement like the rich young ruler. It means that your life is continually professing, I know who God is. That's why I live the way that I live. I'm not saved because of how I live, but I live this way because I'm saved. We are saved by grace through faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by a longing for and an increasing righteousness. 1 Timothy 6, 11 and 12 says this, flee from these things. But these things, if you just go back up and read, is just covetousness and foolishness and harmful desires. You no longer want to do what seemed right to you before. You're out of the porchy way and you're into the way of the Prince of Peace. So flee from these things, you man or woman of God, and pursue, this is how you know you're saved. You pursue the Savior that you say is good and that you love. You don't just call him a good teacher and then go your own way and say, my way's good enough. You follow your good teacher. Your flesh is not changed. Your flesh is still fallen. That's why God's gonna replace it. That's why Jesus says, deny your flesh. Take up your cross and follow me. So you flee from immorality, you men of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Now watch this, verse 12. Fight the good fight. That's how you know you're saved. You make war against sin. And immoralities which wage war against your soul. You take hold of and you grasp. You don't just make a profession one night after a message, but you take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made, watch this, the good confession. That word good means, it's different than the word good teacher, but it means sound, excellent, powerful. A life-changing statement about who Jesus is. Not demons who say truth, but humble men and women that speak a profession or a confession that is powerful in their life to affect change. And you don't do it in isolation. You do it in the presence of many witnesses so that they can continue to spur you on in love and good deeds and help you follow your good shepherd. That's why Christianity is not an individual sport. All of us are gonna stand and sing solo before the Father, but he calls you to be a part of a body. At Watermark, we call them to be members of this community and church. Be in community and pursue righteous faith, love, and peace with us. And wherever you are, whether it's Indianapolis or Boise or Joplin or Houston or Scottsdale or wherever you're at, you find God's people who have found the goodness of God, who are sick of the vomit of what seems right to 20 and 30-year-olds and lives by the ancient words which lead to life. When you do that, you're justified by faith and you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He who has the Son has the life, not just then, but right now. Father, I pray that tonight there might be somebody that is sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they decide to give you their life. 
And they do it not just by saying these words, but by having a constant confession profession, a good confession that they agreeably live by running towards that which you call them to. Father, will you forgive us that so many times in church pulpits, we've just said, just say these words and you're saved as if some um, magic abracadabra happens because you say some little rhyme. We know, Father, that that's not at all what your scripture teaches us. Your scripture teaches us that we should turn. And it's an about face of living according to our will and way. And we don't just say you're good. We follow you in your goodness. And we're not saved because we follow. We follow because we're saved. So Lord, if there's somebody out there that just says, Lord, I'm sick and tired. I'm weary and heavy laden. And I want to come to you, the gentle kindness of God, who by no means will let the guilty go unpunished, that the wages of our sin is still death and we know that we deserve it. We come to you and we just say, Father, will you forgive us? Will you give us mercy? The mercy that was poured out on the cross, would you make it mine? And now that I see, Lord, that you love me even and demonstrated your love for me even in my sinfulness, May I, in this newness of right understanding, this newness of life, begin to run with you, learn your ways, walk with your people, trust in Jesus, fleeing immorality and fleshly lusts which wage war against my soul and begin to follow your kindness and live in your peace. We thank you for all the ancient words that if we just live according to them will lead to good fortune will lead to, as you've said, um, a life that is agreeable to our soul, that is good and acceptable and perfect to the human condition. We thank you, Father, that though we can never be perfect and though we can never be good in your sight, you make us good through him who knew no sin but became sin on our behalf. Help us now to walk with him in righteousness and peace. In Jesus' name.